Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. I want to welcome everyone listening to us on the King's Cast. I want to begin today a, a series that will take us uh, to Easter. I hope it will bless you. It is very challenging material that I'm going to bring to you. I want to talk about. I want to talk about the 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 crucified life. Jesus Christ said, "No one can." Follow me. No one could come after me, except or unless he picks up his cross and follows me. And I want to uh, unpack this a bit as we think about Easter. And I'm mindful of a story in the Easter narrative. Of a man called Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to to carry the cross with Christ, and I want to bring you that that image of not only Christ carrying the cross, but that another man was involved as well, and that perhaps a symbol right to our hearts, right to our lives today, that right from the beginning, in this new community of the kingdom of God, it was never intended that only Christ should carry a cross, but that actually others should as well. And I want to, these are the reflections that we're going to reflect on, think about, at this particular Easter time, this week, next week, and most likely the week after. Now, as though to do something completely different, I brought us to a chapter in Second Kings, chapter 16, as far away from Easter in the Bible as you might think you could possibly get. But I want to read you something that happened in Israel's history and Bible history, and I think you'll understand why I've chosen this reading as we get into it. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 of 2 Kings 16. And this is what the Word of God says. It's about a deal that King Ahaz does with the king of Assyria. A deal brokered between Israel's king and the Assyrian king. And we'll read it and I will unpack it. We will will understand it together. It says this in verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pielzer. Don't look at me. You don't know how to say that either. (laughs) King of Assyria. 
he went to see the king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offerings and grain offerings, poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. Verse 14, the bronze altar, that was the original one, that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. Now, look at me. This kind of stuff is, some people call it Bible filler. You could read that and it wouldn't register with you at all. But let me tell you what happened. The king goes to see the king of Assyria. The king of Israel goes to see the king of Assyria. In fact, he's in the middle of a bit of a military deal. He's stripped the temple of gold to do a military deal with him. But that's not the point here. While the king of Israel is in this foreign territory, I guess like happens today, he gets, he gets a tour. Like you might do to David Cameron or or the United States president or something like that. You know, they get they get a tour. And uh, so he gets a tour. And while he's on the tour, the king of Israel, Ahaz, he sees this altar that's in Assyria. A religious altar. And he looks at it, he thinks, you know what? That's pretty good. I like that. That's actually better than the one we got at home in the temple of the Lord. The Damascus altar looks nicer than the one we've got in Israel. So, he gets someone to sketch it and they send it to Uriah. And by the way, if ever you needed proof that they had email in the Bible, this is it. Because they must have sent it as a PDF attachment. Because by the time the king gets home, they built it already. How did that happen? Anyway, there you go. Answers on a postcard to Mr. Philip Shaw. So, when he gets back, they've built this new altar. The one that the king hopes will be really popular in Israel. Now comes the question, what do we do with the, with the one that God designed? What do we do with the one that the Holy Spirit prescribed originally through Moses? The bronze altar. Oh, well, what we do, and we read it. He moved it. It's in verse 14. He moved it. He didn't, he didn't throw it away. But he moved it to a less prominent place. 
And he put the, he put the Damascus altar in pride of place in the temple. And he moved the one that God had given him. And he put it, he didn't take it away, didn't destroy it. But he put it to the side so that it was not central anymore. I believe that he shouldn't have done that. The good news is he had a good king come after him who put it all right. Hezekiah. But I believe that in this very, very symbolic act, we can actually be guilty of some of the similar type of crime as this man committed. Similar mistake. The Bible says this. That the message of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Can you say amen? And this king did what many Christians are tempted to do today. What many churches are tempted to do today. Sometimes what some leaders are tempted to do today, which is this, to go and go into, if you like, the world and say, this looks nice, let's move this in to what we're doing and let's take what God has prescribed and we're not going to throw it out because we wouldn't dare do that, but we might push it over against the wall. And there is a kind of Christianity that is preached all over the Western world, and I'm afraid to say, not just in the West, that tries to play down the message of the cross of Christ and turns the gospel into something totally different. If you could just consider what Jesus meant when he said, if you would come after me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. If you could just consider what that means, because Jesus was clearly going to a place of execution. He's effectively saying, if you want to follow me, you have to be prepared for the electric chair just like what's going to happen to me. We have to carry, like Simon of Cyrene, we have to carry our cross. And of course, I know you don't believe this, but let's just say it anyway. Carrying our cross is not giving up cheese on toast for Lent. which I would never do. Having our cross to bear is nothing to do with not having all the money we would like. Having our cross to bear is not the fact that we've got pain in our arm and we just live with it. That kind of talk that people say. It's just my cross to bear. Now Jesus said, if you will come after me, you've got to do it Properly. Properly. And the danger is, we don't like that. 
So we go and get a plastic altar, a faulty altar, and we put it in the center of our Christian lives. And, and, and we take the message of the cross and we take the message of discipleship or, or commitment, whatever, you, whatever term you want to use, sacrifice. And we don't get rid of it. We know it should be there. But it's not in the center. It's over here on the side. And maybe the, maybe the crazy Christians can go over there. Maybe the, the people who just take it a bit too far can go over there and worship at that altar. But we, the lukewarm, we worship at the plastic altar. This is the one we like. Designed to be popular, but not designed by God. It's a a challenge, isn't it? To us all. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that if you do this, this, and this, God will give you a new car. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not send $12 and we in turn will send you a multicolored handkerchief. Blow your nose on it and send it back, sweetheart. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we all fall short of the glory of God. And we need the mercy of God. And the only way the mercy of God can be released is through a violent death. Submitted to by the Son of God himself. And as he goes to his cross, he turns to us and says, you're going to have to pick up your cross as well. And that includes me and you. And none of us like this. This doesn't sound, this doesn't sound comfortable. This doesn't sound easy, but it's not easy, but it is the truth. It is the truth. We need to pick up our cross and follow him. King Ahaz replaced the altar of God with a modern one. Today this can happen if we replace the message of the cross with something seemingly more popular. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified, says Paul, with Christ and I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. Now here's my question. And here's what we want to explore in the next couple of weeks together. What does pick up your cross mean? Because at the moment, no one's going to come and knock on your door and execute you for being a Christian. When that day comes, then we preach that. Because that's exactly what was happening. But there has to be some way to say, well, what does carrying our cross mean? What, what does it mean? If it doesn't mean you know, giving up meat for Lent, if it doesn't mean giving up television on a Sunday, you know, what does it mean? And what I want to do is I want to take us to the cross of Christ and I want us to reflect on the things that Jesus said while he was on the cross. And maybe these things that Jesus said will begin to help us to understand what our response ought to be, and this will become clear as we go. 
The first thing he said, and I've tried to put these in some kind of chronological order, but of course I cannot really do that because the, we're not, we cannot be sure of it. But if I was going to try to put these seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, bringing Matthew, Mark, Luke and John together, and try to put them in some kind of chronological order, this one would be the first one. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus says this, Father, forgive them. What's the rest of the quote? Because they know not what they do. It seems to me that that was most likely the first thing he said. Something very interesting about the words of Christ from the cross are that they are quick words. They are words that don't require much breath. I don't know if you ever thought about this before. But while a man is on a cross, he, he's fighting to breathe. The nearest equivalent to explain what it would be like to be on a cross in terms of your of your breath would be that it would be similar to having an asthma attack and trying to speak. And thus you find in the words of Jesus on the cross, all of them are quick and short because he hasn't got the breath to speak anything lengthily. Son, behold, your mother. I'm thirsty. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you find this all the way through. It is finished. Someone firing out words as fast as they can. Here's the first one. Father, forgive them. You know, don't you, that the soldiers had crucified him. And while they were crucifying him, he forgave them. He forgave them. When Jesus died six hours later, the Roman centurion was so moved by what had occurred that to, to some degree at least, anyway, he was converted to Christianity, was he not? He said, this man was the son of God. Now I want to ask, how did he know that? Because on the cross, there were no miracles. On the cross of Christ, water did not turn into wine. On the cross of Christ, people were not healed. On the cross of Christ, there was no walking on the water. So what could possibly have converted a pagan Roman, hard-nosed officer. The centurion is in charge of the crucifixion. He must have killed hundreds of people. What was it that so moved him? Well, among a whole load of things will have been this statement here. That the man that he was crucifying normally, as they would crucify the people, you can bet your life that they would try to kick them and 
spit at them, and cursed them. We know that from the accounts in the Gospels. The two other men, you know, left and right of Christ, were cursing. Jesus did not do that. He forgave him. So here's a clue. What's the crucified life? What's the crucified life? Number one, it's a life of forgiveness. You've got to forgive people. If you haven't forgiven people, you haven't got the crucified life going on for you. You need the crucified life. You need to forgive people. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want to suggest to you today that he would have forgiven them even if they had known what they were doing. But that's my opinion. What is it to pick up your cross? It ain't to sing a song. The crucified life is to give grace to your enemy. That's the crucified life. I remember many years ago, I think I told this story before. I was working in a church. I was like a steward in the church. I'm going back 15 years ago. And in this church, there was a safe. A safe, you know, where you have money. And this was a big church. So in the safe, there was a lot of money. And I remember one time, the pastor of the church gave me the key to the safe. To have, you know, permanently. I thought, this is amazing. Like, the feeling of trust. That's amazing. You know? It's like giving someone your PIN number. Which you should never do. Not to anybody. <laughs> she pretends she doesn't know, but she does. They gave me the key to the safe. Because every now and then I had to go and get petty, petty cash and things. You know, I was involved with something. So, did we, you know, they didn't just go around giving out keys to the safe. Oh, you've been here five years? Here, have a key to the safe. That's not how it worked. That's certainly not how it's going to work here. In case you start praying along those lines. If I give you the key to the safe, we change the safe. That day. No, they gave me the key to the safe. I just felt, I felt really, I thought, that, that is trust, isn't it? That's trust. I'm in the gang here. I am in the gang. So one day, feeling all trusted and empowered, I thought, well, I better go to the safe and get some money out. You know, I've got to go to the safe. I'm going to use my key. And then I went to go to the safe. But the safe was in a room behind a door, a locked door, a key of which I did not have. Right? And that scheming pastor, he knew that all along. 
And I learned a lot from him. So I thought, uh, this is useless. It's a really long safe key. You know, real good. You could have, you know, had a sword fight with this key. It was long. But I didn't have the other key because it was required for two people to be at work, you see. Clever, isn't it? That's clever. You should try that at home. We're moving to a flat soon where the toilet is locked from the outside. Can anyone explain that to me? Because I won't be going in there for a long time. We're getting Miracova. We need a new door straight away. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to me about this. Seemed to speak to me through it. Do you know, the key was like, Think of it like your, your destiny, what God wants you to do, the gift of God in you. But you know what? Before you can use it, you have to have partnership with others. And I needed partnership with the treasurer of the church to access the safe. You think you've got something, but until you forgive people, you haven't got anything really. Because the Bible says... That if we stand praying, but we have grievance with someone else, then our Father does not hear us. Am I telling the truth? Is that in the Bible? It, it sure is. sure is. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. I've taught this all over the place, but let me just give you the three obstacles to forgiveness in most of our lives. Very quickly. Number one. Reasons why we don't forgive, because we're waiting for an apology of some kind. If they'll apologize, I'll forgive them. Well, guess what? Most people don't apologize for nothing. Is that true? A lot of people don't apologize for anything. Do you know what? Some of the people who've hurt you, they don't even know they have. Am I telling the truth? Most of the people who've hurt me in my life, they don't know they've hurt me. So they're not about to show up with a card and a box of chocolates and flowers to apologize to me because they don't even know they did it. Maybe the person who's hurt you the most will apologize to you. For many of you, sometimes the people who've hurt us the most, they're not, they're not even alive anymore. So no apology is ever going to come. We have to forgive without an apology. Number two reason why we find it hard to forgive is because it's not fair. Sometimes we think if we forgive, it's like we're letting them off. You know, they, they, justice has not been done. Well, welcome to forgiveness. That's exactly what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is injustice committed. That's what it is. Forgiveness is always about injustice and you on the blunt end of it. That's what it always is. If someone comes up to me at the end of the service today and punches me in the face and then says, oh, I don't know what happened. It might have been the devil. <laughs> I might punch you back and say, this devil stuff's catching just kidding. 
if, if someone punches me and then says afterwards, oh, I'm so sorry, what do I do? I tell you, the Holy Spirit would come upon me and I would forgive them. But I'd go home with a sore face, wouldn't I? I would. And when we forgive, we go away with a sore face, you see. That, that's how it works. People struggle with forgiveness. It's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. That, that's it. Exactly. You got it. It's not fair. So forgive. If it was fair, it'd be easy. We'd all be forgiving all the time. We'd be walking in a sea of forgiveness all the time. But it's hard. Because it costs us. We pay someone else's debt. That's what happens in forgiveness. The third reason why we find it so hard to forgive is that we just simply will not obey Luke chapter 6. And I think it's around about verse 36, 37, where Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies, do good to those who spitefully use you. Pray for them. Pray for those who spitefully use you. You know what we normally do? We pray against them. Oh, shaka, Lord, show them the error of their ways. No, that's not what Jesus means. He means be, be a blessing to them. If we're going to live the crucified life, we're going to have to get on the cross. And if we're going to get on the cross, we've got to say what he says. And what he says is, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. The power of that, amongst some other things, converted the Roman captain to Christianity. There's power in it. The crucified life requires us to regularly forgive those that have hurt us and leave the justice with the Lord. Here's another one. Something Jesus said from the cross. You know this story that, um, of the two men left and right of the Lord. Always depicted as the one who's good is always on the left of Jesus, but we don't really know that, but that's how they always put them in the films. The bad one over here, the good one over here. And you know the story that they were reviling him, cursing him, and then one of the men has a change of heart, doesn't he? And he begins to think about his life and his sin, and he begins to think about the day of judgment and by the way, that's a really good idea because we really are all dying. Sooner or later, you better start thinking about the day of judgment. <laughs> and I recommend it to be sooner. But he starts to think about his life, that he'd sinned and failed. And so he looks to Jesus and the Holy Spirit must reveal Jesus as the Savior. And he says, Lord, I, and he tells the other man, shut up, you know, and he says, Lord, Will you remember me? I want you to remember me when you come in your kingdom, when you come with your kingly power, one translation says. And this is what Jesus says to him. I tell you the truth. Go on, say it with me. Today you will be with me, come on, in paradise. What's this got to do with the crucified life? I think quite a lot. the worst time of Jesus' whole life. The whole, there was no worse time. The Bible says of Christ, the book of Isaiah, he was marred more than any man. 
the writings of David and Isaiah together depict such treatment of Christ that he was beyond almost recognition. Marred more than any man. They made his back like a plowed field. They plucked out his beard. That's what all the prophetic scriptures say. You haven't had a day as bad as this. Neither have I. You've not had a day as bad as he had that day. You may have a day as bad, but you've not had it yet. And yet, in the midst of his own problems, he's still got time for him. That's the crucified life. The crucified person does not say, actually, can you leave me alone for a few months while I sort myself out and then I help you? Because I've got my own problems at the moment. Well, how many of you know we all got our own problems at the moment? And in the next moment, we might have a few more uh, problems. This was the worst hour and the worst set of hours in the life of Christ. But in this period of time, he still helps the man. Now, there, there were times, let's just be very clear, in the ministry of Jesus, when he said to the disciples, let's get away from the crowd and rest. Sometimes people talk about, well, I'm working 24-7. Well, you're not in line with God then. Because even God is not asking humans to work 24-7 on anything. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, I'm a 24-7 kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Because God said 24-6. <laughs> Anybody? Anyone with me? Or have you gone off for your seventh day somewhere else? No, there's, there, there's, there are times to rest. We used to have a doctor uh, as part of this church, who I greatly respect. He's not among us now. But he used to be a doctor, and he found it very hard to come to church. Some of you doctors in the room may have the same experience. Because he used to come to church, people used to ask him, excuse me, are you a doctor? <laughs> well, I've got this. I've got a friend and he's a doctor of theology. He's a PhD, but he, he knows nothing about first aid. And he was on a British Airways flight, I believe it was British Airways, and a lady got ill on the flight and they looked through the passenger manifest and they said, oh, there's a doctor on board. He's, he's a doctor of education, in fact. His PhD is in education. And they came to him and said, are you doctor so-and-so? He said, yes. He said, well, there's a patient over here. I said, oh, okay then. And he went <laughs> and he treated the woman on the plane. I wouldn't trust him to put a plaster on my toe. He gave her a few pills and told her, you'll be, you'll be all right. Hopefully the lady survived. If she didn't, I'm not telling this story again. 
But this poor doctor used to come to the church here. People used to come up to him who were his actual patients, right? His actual patients. And he used to do this. I'm closed. And he used to do this thing. <laughs> you know, like he was closing a hatch. I'm closed. And they used to want to go, yeah, but can I just talk to you? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. No wonder he left. He went to an even bigger church. There's probably more patience for him there. <laughs> Hopefully he's still closed. There is actually a time to be closed. But let's be careful. Because you'd have thought that this was the time for Jesus to be closed, but it wasn't closed. You might be ill yourself, but you can still help someone. You might be depressed, you still help someone. You might be down on your luck, forgive the use of that phrase, but we all know what I mean. But you still have someone. You still have someone. That's the crucified life. It's to say, not my will, but yours be done. And it might be the will of God for you to be closed. But it might not be. Although we ourselves may be suffering, we must still be prepared to reach out to those who hurt around us with the Father's love. Don't you just love these people who go into hospital? They're as sick as anything. And yet when you go and visit them, they're going around the ward talking to everybody. You want to say to them, shouldn't you be in the bed over there? Yes, but look, this lady, this, I've been chatting with this lady uh, about the Lord Jesus. I've been encouraging her to read her Gideon Bible. See, because <laughs> when the flesh is weak, the spirit is still willing. So you want to carry the cross? Really? You really want to be a disciple of Jesus properly? Sure you do. Sometimes that means you have to go the extra mile, even when you're having a bad time. Shall I do one more? All those in favor, say aye. One more. Woman. He never calls her mother. Behold your son. You know this, this phrase? Jesus says it to John. Is that right? He's on the cross. And he's thinking about, he sees Mary, his human mother. And he's thinking about what's going to happen to her. But he's not just thinking about mummy. He's thinking about his best friend and all, John. What's going to happen to John now that I am, of course he was going to be raised and go back to heaven. But now that I'm gone, what's going to happen to John? And what's going to happen to Mary? And he sees them, they are together, and in these last few Minutes, hours of his life, he pairs them up together. And he says to his mother, I want you to look after this man as though he were your son. And he says to John, I want you to accept 
Mary as though she were your mother. Had this happen recently in my own family where, uh, well, one of my, a number of my relatives died in a short period of time and my cousin went to my mum and said, will you be, will you be my mum now? Will you be my mum now? God bless them. What might this be to do with the crucified life? I'll tell you. Those two people were not blood relatives. But Jesus put them together and he said, I want you to love each other. I want you to forget about your birth certificates. I want you to forget about what country you're from, what tribe you're from, what background you're from. And I want you to to live as though you are family. And the crucified life says this. Whoever the people are in the body of Christ... They are my family. Now, let me tell you something that you did not know before. You've never even thought about this, but I want to tell you. Some people in the body of Christ are not easy to get along with. Now, I know you never knew that. That's news to you. Just trust me, it's true. Some people in church are not easy to get along with. And you might, in fact, be sitting on one side of the church while the other person's on the other side today. Some are listening on their iPods because they don't want to come to church because someone's offended them. This is a word for you. The crucified life says this. Even though the church may be a difficult place to be, and of course for many of us it isn't, But for some it is, because of history, because of what's gone on, or even because of what's going on right now, we turn to that person and we say, you are my brother, or you are my mother, or you are my my father. Now be careful how you do this. Because this is King's Church. It's not Jeremy Kyle. And for you as a young person to go up to a man and say, I just want you to know, you're my father. (laughs) May cause some angst. Yeah. And we don't want angst. (laughs) We accept one another. I am your brother. You have to like me. You do. A bit. And I have to like all of you. Lord, surely not all of them. Yes, all of them? Okay, all of them. And you have to like everybody. I've learned you don't have to trust everybody. That's a bit different though. But we are together. 
Sometimes I've been in a house group or a church meeting and I've looked around and I've thought to myself, where else in the world would you have such a weird group of people like this? This man's a millionaire. This has not been in this church, but you know, this man's a millionaire. This lady does the checkout at Tesco. This man doesn't know who he is. (laughs) This lady's 10 years old. And this lady here is from, is from China. What are we all doing here? Like this. Oh, someone's at the door. Oh, someone from Australia is coming in. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. It's the glorious family of God. Even the funny ones are in the family of God. Now, you tell me who the funny ones are. You have your own view. Some Christians are nasty. I know that. Some Christians, uh, I wouldn't trust them very much. But we have to accept one another. And where people are not quite there, we have to be patient with them because maybe one day they will get there. Can you say amen? And maybe one day they will be, you know, different. But God has put us in an amazing family, accepting and loving difficult people, even from among the family, is part of being on the cross. Let me finish with this. This may not just apply to the church family. This may apply to your blood family too. God wants you to love your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your sibling. God wants you to love your children. Maybe not necessarily your children's boyfriend. But in the the crucified life, we love each other. In the crucified life, we care about each other. You're not allowed to have enemies in this kingdom. Not enemies. Not like that. So I want to encourage you today. We'll pick this up and finish it next time. But if we're going to carry the cross, if we're going to Be the real deal, not just bring in the plastic altar that's easier or more attractive on the eye and move the crucified life to the side. But if we're going to have the cross as a major part of our lives, if we're going to be like Simon of Cyrene and carry it, then we're going to have to do what Jesus did on the cross. We are going to have to forgive those who've offended us. We're going to have to reach out to people even when we're struggling ourselves And we're going to have to be part of the solution of bringing unity to the body of Jesus. It's beautiful what the Lord says. In Ephesians, he says this, I want you to keep the unity. He never tells us to make unity. He never tells us to form unity. He just tells us to keep the unity. Because unity is the Spirit's default. So make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That might mean you have to shut your mouth sometimes. That might mean you have to, I want to say this, but I'm not going to say it. That might mean, oh, I feel like I want to explode, but I'm not going to. It's all part of being the solution to this wonderful family that God has placed us in. Thank you for listening, and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church, or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless, and goodbye.